Good day, nerds. This is Megan coming at you with another Cantina conversation. Today's interview features Wick, Rick Blyweiss talking about Murder in Hexford. That is the second installment in the Pinion Scorpion mystery series. The first book in that series is Pinion Scorpion and the Barbershop Detectives, which is available now. Uh, Murder in Hexford is coming out on February 21st. This was such a cool conversation. Rick is a fascinating person. He's got really impressive um, and extensive professional career in the music industry, publishing industry, uh, prior to taking a stab at writing his first book. Um, So this was a really cool conversation, just getting to know him more and also talking about his experiences in um, tackling this new project. But without further ado, here is Rick Blyweiss. All right. So today we've got Rick Blyweiss. We're talking about Murder in Hexford, which is the second installment in the Pinion Scorpion series. Um, Murder Mystery. Rick, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I, like I said, I finished this book a couple of days ago, so it's fresh and I, it was cute. Like, I don't know if that's a good word to describe a murder mystery. Yeah, but it was a different change of, it was a change of pace for me. Um, for the murder mystery genre, it's like, uh, set in the 1900s in England. And so it was very, um, it was, it was fun and entertaining. And so I'm, I'm excited to chat, chat more about it today. That, that's great. And I'm glad that's your response because that's what I'm hoping to get as a response. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's a, it's a fine line. I feel like with the murder mysteries, cause you could go like really dark and like thriller suspense, or you could go like little on the light, on the light side where, you know, you're not, you're not feeling too, it's like a still like a lighthearted read and you, you still feel good. <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of, yeah, exactly. That is what I was hoping to accomplish. So mission accomplished. Yep, exactly. <laughs> um, so before we get started, um, could you please go into, just give like a brief summary um, of the book so that readers can follow along with the conversation? Sure, absolutely. So, um, Pinion Scorpion is the uh, chief of police in a small English countryside town uh, called Hexford in 1910. Uh, It's a fictitious town. He's a fictitious uh, character, if you will. And he he comes to town. uh, He's been in the police uh, his whole life in England. And he comes to town uh, the month before this book occurs. The first book in the series is set in the month that he actually arrives in the town. And he, um, it turns out that the owner of the town's barbershop, Calvin Brown, used to, and he and Pignon used to be friends when they, when Calvin was an apprentice barber and when Pignon was a constable at a lower rank in another town many years earlier, and they, they kindle their, rekindle their friendship immediately. And because Scorpion is sort of new to the town, doesn't know his own police staff, etc., he, as he did when he was a constable once, he uh, enlists the aid of Calvin, the bar, Calvin's barbers, Eve and Barnabas, and um, his shoeshine man, Thomas, and a local reporter who write uh, Billy, who writes up the, the exploits of these cases, and a bookstore owner, uh, Thelma Smith, and uh, Pignon enlist their help in helping him solve the cases and interrogate uh, suspects and interview witnesses, and they do it all in the barber shop. And um, <laughs> In the book, there are three crimes. There, this is not a spoiler. It's just what the crimes are. Uh, there's a um, blacksmith who is shot and killed on the way home after helping a friend birth some cow, baby calves. Uh, and then there is a balloon, hot air balloonist who is shot with an arrow and killed uh, while ostensibly in the air in the balloon alone, and nobody can figure out how that could happen. And then there is a usurious money lender who mysteriously dial, dies in the barbershop while having his hair cut. And that's and and the book is um, it, it, I, the best way I could describe it is it is a classic 
a throwback to classic whodunits of the Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes era with a little of the humor of John. Uh, um, oh, my God. Why am I blanking? Robert Parker, Robert B. Parker, Spencer <laughs> series, you know, with what I believe people will find to be colorful characters. Everybody's kind of quirky and mm-hmm. uh, Scorpion and Thelma, the bookshop owners, start having a relationship. And uh, then there's the uh, foe of Scorpion's uh, Faust and Hardcastle, who's a, a newspaper owner that tries to discredit him. And that that's kind of a thread that runs through. And, and so it, it's just, uh, you know, I hope people enjoy reading it, forget some of the stresses yeah. of today's <laughs> world and just kind of laugh occasionally and go, oh, now how did they do that? And kind of, you know, are challenged by the mysteries, but it is light reading. There's no gore. There's no heavy sex. There's none of that in it. It's just, you know, like feel good, feel good mystery. Yeah. And I, it's, I like, like I said, it's a different approach and I, and I enjoyed it because it was kind of like, oh, here's a dead body. Well, ma'am, can you identify him? <laughs> it's just like, so, you know, like light and yeah, like I said, cute. And it's just, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's just, it makes it a little fun because you're kind of like, well, yeah, let's, let's solve this. What happened? Like, and how did it happen and, and why? And, um, it's, you know, it's just like you build the suspense a little bit only because, you could tell that Pingyan's like kind of like, you know, I've got to figure out, but I want everybody here so I can explain it. <laughs> so know, readers are like, well, come on, let's get it going. That's <laughs> well, kind of a formula that's used in a lot of the BBC TV shows too, like Death in Paradise and a few others where, you, you know, they kind of assemble all the suspects and it's like, okay. And then the main characters, you know, start yeah. doing it for everyone. It, you know, it's kind of the same formula in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, it's, I mean, Hey, it works. So <laughs> why not? Um, so I dug it in your background a little bit. Can you um, expand on that? Cause you have like a, just a really impressive, like professional achievement record up to this point. And so, you know, I want to kind of um, go over that and maybe just like what led you to switching gears and trying out this new project of yours. Well, I'll try to make it short. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Cause it's a long career. Uh, basically um, I spent the vast majority of my career up until uh, 2003 2002 in the music industry. You can see from my office wall behind me some of the plaques uh, that, that I was given for working on various projects, artists, and records. Um, but I was also a record producer myself. I produced over 50 records. I had a Grammy nomination. I had one of my records used by the National Football League, uh, another one as a music bed, another one used as the bed of a Coca Cola commercial. Um, but I also was a senior executive in the music industry and worked with U2 and Whitney Houston and Pink and David Bowie and Kiss. And and uh, I, I worked on one of the earliest uh, rap records, Curtis Blow, The Breaks. And, you know, I, I worked with Run DMC and U, Wu-Tang. And I mean, you know, it's like uh, I, I enjoyed every second of it. Um, and uh, then I uh, in. And I also chased Rainbow, the pot of gold at the end of Rainbows, <laughs> because aside from the record producing, um, I also uh, founded and ran a New York City tourism company that was an absolute disaster. But, you know, oh, no. <laughs> if you don't try, you, you know, you'll never succeed. Um, and uh, I also owned and ran and then sold for a profit, which was a good thing, a, a video uh, sales company. So I've done a number of different things. I retired in 2002. I moved from New York City to the small rural town of Ashland, Oregon in 2003, (laughs) and I got bored, and I joined the boards of directors of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, the uh, Ashland Independent Film Festival, the Food Bank, the, uh, well, actually, I wasn't on the board of the Food Bank, but I I was on the, uh, the group that raised money for their permanent building. I was a member of that. And I was also on the, uh, the president's board at, uh, at Southern Oregon University for 10 years. And I was the chair of the board for two years. And I 
headed various uh, organ uh, subcultures, if you will, within the university and the Shakespeare Festival. And my next door neighbor was a poet. And she knew that I had done some nonfiction writing. I had, over the course of my career, I always loved writing. And so in addition to writing songs that, you know, that I did, um, I wrote newspaper articles and columns and magazine articles, but they were all nonfiction. Mm. I'm a member of a writer's group. So I think you'd like the people. I think they'd like you. So why don't you come join us? So I joined them and I liked them and they stirred my creative juices. So I started writing fiction. Coincidentally to that happening, a friend of mine who lives up in Portland, Oregon, uh, called and said, I'm coming down to, um, to Ashland because I, I, this is him talking now, I own the audio rights to Winnie the Pooh and I'm going to license them to this publishing company called Blackstone that's located in Ashland. Is it okay if I stay with you while I'm there? Of course. Mm-hmm. So while Christopher was at Blackstone, he mentioned me and my wife, who was also an executive in the music industry uh, early on, uh, well, before we moved here. And uh, the owner and founder of that company, Blackstone, met with us and hired us as consultants and to be on his first board of directors. I'm still there 17 years later. I'm head of business development and I've been acquiring big authors and debut authors and doing a lot of different things. But I also was doing all this writing. And the first two books that I wrote, uh, I could not get a deal for. And in reading them, they needed editing and I'm, I'm working on them you know, they'll get it published someday, maybe. And if they don't, you know what? But um, <laughs> I was writing short stories, mostly. And I brought a short story featuring Pinon Scorpion into my writing group. And everybody, after I read that first short story, went, this is the one. You've got to turn this into a book. And so I worked on it for a number of years. And at the age of 78 last year, well, I guess I was 77 when the book came out. At the age of 77, I had my first published novel, and I thought that was very cool. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, congrats on finally doing that, and congrats on... It's it's so funny how you, you know you said, well, I got bored, and so I started doing this. But these are like... I think you wouldn't have accomplished so much if you weren't just... It seems like you were just chasing that um, challenge, you know? So... <laughs> Or just wanting to make good use of your time. And it's so fascinating how, how people's, uh, just little tidbits of, of that, like drive and that ambition, like where that takes you. And I think, yeah, I, so fascinating, so cool. Um, and I love that, you know, you, you just kept with the writing aspect of it that you kept going for it and that, um, you know, yeah, like don't, you know, don't knock yourself for, for not hitting it on the first try, you know, cause there's a reason why you wanted to keep getting better and improving and share, share opinion with the world, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I, life to me is too interesting not to do interesting things. So, you know, it's like, I guess, I guess I also get bored easily. So, uh, you know, it was like, uh, here's something to do that I will enjoy. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's like the creative aspect because you you you're definitely in that creative side of all those industries where, um, aside maybe from the consulting, but that's still got some creative aspects to it where you kind of have to like get your, you know, help others get their creative juices flowing and stuff like that too. Um, no, yeah, that's that's awesome and very impressive and um you know i'd say you made you made good <laughs> you made good good use of your time here so far um so kind of you know bouncing around to some of the stuff that you mentioned what um what in particular okay i guess it's like a uh kind of a three-part question that you could probably answer with one explanation um <laughs> yeah <right. laughs> um what draws you to like the murder mystery what um why did you choose like early 1900s what why did you choose england like across you know the world to like you know because it's very you know distinct in this very distinct setting very distinct time period very distinct like genre so what what drew you to all of that what why did you make those choices well what drew me to uh, mystery was uh the first series of books 
I ever read, uh, I, I mean, I can't remember if I read something when I was three years old or four <laughs> years old, but the first thing I remember was the Hardy Boys series, which was, you know, a series of mysteries. And then I got hooked on, I read every book that Agatha Christie wrote. I wrote, read every book and story that Arthur Conan Doyle wrote. I, I just started consuming um mystery authors, uh, Maigret and Rex Stout and Ellery Queen and, you know, it, it's just uh, Chester Himes. Uh, uh, through the years, I just have been an uh, avid mystery reader. So it, it just seemed like a natural genre for me to be writing in because it, it's what I love reading mm. and what I have a lot of familiarity with. Um as to why I did it in England and in that era, um, I've been to England a few times, uh, many times, actually, in my career in life, uh, really enjoy the country and um, have seen the city. I've been in London many times. So I've been in the countryside, too. In fact, I was uh, one time I was in a castle in the countryside and I won a crossbow shooting contest, even though I had never shot a crossbow before. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, and so I just sort of like bonded with with the country in that regard. And why did I set it there and put it in that era? I think it's because I I wanted to replicate to a degree in for today what Agatha, the style that Agatha Christie and and uh, Doyle wrote in, mm. uh, I tried to, to some degree, you know, be if you're going to have Hercule Poirot over here and Sherlock Holmes here, I wanted the third leg of that stool to be picked. <laughs> all the same general era, they're all deductive, observational. They each have their own quirks, and they're very different from each other, but they also share things in common. It just seemed natural, but I'm going to give you another part to the answer, too. And the other part to the answer is the books write themselves mm. in me. Uh, I'm, I'm not a plotter. I'm a pantser. I write <laughs> the seat of my pants. The, the books actually show up in my brain and start playing out like a movie. And my job is to sit at my computer computer keyboard and type what I'm seeing play out in my brain. And it was just there. So it's like, okay, let's go with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a lot really common with even just experienced writers where they don't they don't plot or they don't outline. They and then, you know, a dog will show up or like a best friend will will turn into like the main character, like <laughs> just stuff like that. And it happens. So like the way you say, you know, it just came to me. I was just doing what was natural. It was um just me writing down what is in my head. That's so that's so common. And yeah writing process for a lot of authors yeah is that is that similar to like i don't know if did you have any were your career in like the music producing and all that stuff did any of that like any of those skills or experiences transfer over to when you approach this new project or like were there you know even kind of expanding on to that were there any like biggest lessons learned and big takeaways things like that the, the biggest lesson i learned and it's it's not a direct answer to your question, but it is <laughs> lesson I learned was that not everything you do succeeds, and you just got to say, okay, so be. It. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, it's like I I know people that if they if they get a bad reviewer, they get rejected. They manuscript. It's like it's the end of their life, the end of the world. I'm not like that. It's like it's just it's part of life. You win some, you lose some, and you hope you win more than you lose. Um, did I, no, I don't think the, you know, I'll tell you the the thing that was most directly, uh, linked to this is back in the late sixties, a bandmate of mine and I co-wrote a science fiction rock musical. And, um, we, we almost got it produced on Broadway. In fact, oh wow! Uh, it was represented by a man named Sid Bernstein, who's was a big deal back in that era. He brought the Beatles and the Rolling Stones to the United States for the first time. And then it was produced, uh, the dem demonstration recordings were produced by a man named John McClure, who was Leonard Bernstein's producer. And um, they brought it to a man named Robert Stigwood. And Stigwood uh, was the man who shepherded the Bee Gees and managed them their whole career. 
He also was an impresario. He produced on Broadway Joseph and the uh, Technicolor Dreamcoat. He produced the movie Saturday Night Fever in Greece. I mean, it was a big deal guy. And Sid brought him our rock opera. And two weeks later, uh, I got a call from Sid who said, Robert really likes your rock opera, um, but he's got another one that he's looking at, and he's only got the capacity to produce one of them. So we'll know in about two or three weeks which one he's going with. Keep your fingers crossed. Well, fingers crossed didn't work out because he produced the other one. But the other one was Evita. And I don't know if you know that Evita started as a rock opera, not as a play or a movie. Okay. and so it's like, I'm okay losing out to Evita in retrospect. Yeah. <laughs> that experience of writing a structured fictional story really kind of laid the foundation for what I, uh, what I did later in life, writing these fictional books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine, um, yeah, that's kind of where it crosses over a little bit, where you have to like write it down. You have to give the characters dialogue and you have to, you know, build this plot and build up to it. And, you know, that whole beginning climax resolution, all that jazz. And so, yeah, absolutely. That would have given you a little bit of taste, a little bit of experience, but within a realm that you were already familiar with and with your network that you were already like established in. And so I, that's like even makes it even more fascinating that you were able to like step into this new industry and this new skill set and we're still able to like not only take those things with you, but then learn, learn new things, I imagine. Well, but I, that's such a good attitude. Well, you mentioned earlier, like you win some, you lose some, like, don't, you know, you can't be afraid of failure or like, yeah, if you need a moment to like wallow in your like disappointment or your failure or whatever take that moment and then just like move on like it's okay like (laughs) and it's like even so it takes people so so much time to get to that point you know yeah well i I have a a little uh, motto or saying that i've developed and that and that is i don't dwell on my failures i I revel in my successes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's like why why clutter your mind with failures and negativity when you can focus on success and happiness? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it just, and I think your work speaks to that too. Cause I imagine if you were, if you were still bitter, you would have might've come up with a different story, <laughs> a different style. Ever, yeah. I don't think I've ever been bitter. I, you know, that's, that's for people who want to be bitter. Do you ever watch the, uh, the TV show Grace and Frankie? With, uh, um i've i've caught it a few times yeah i i do i think i um i like the uh actors a little bit more than yeah. i you know catch right. on to the show <laughs> there's there's a character in the show named mary elizabeth she's one of their friends and in one of the last episodes uh of the show she made a quote that i loved so much i wrote the quote down so i wouldn't forget it because i think it's tremendously germane now obviously it was written by the writers of the show but it was spoken by her and her her uh, quote was you are always going to be disappointed if all you remember are your failures yeah it's like come on you know remember the happiness why dwell on negatives yeah and it's as simple as that it's really just it's not complicated it's as simple as that you know (laughs) Um, so let's see here. So this is, um, a series. We've got book one and book two. I'm going to have to add a uh, book one to like my audio, my audio to listen to list, I think now, cause it, I, yeah, well, yeah, I'm interested in, in his, uh, more of his background. Cause you were mentioning, um, in the first book that, you know, his, his background is a little more fleshed out, understandably, but I still enjoyed him as a character and, 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 you know, cause he's quirky too and he's eccentric and he's got his unique way of connecting the dots and, and what's, you know, what's not to enjoy out of that, out of his problem solving, you know, style. Um, so aside from that, was there any like, um, going from book one, the debut, and then going on to the sequel, were there any like differences in your experiences now that you kind of have one book done? Um, you know, any, anything that stands out that you were able to kind of like narrow down or, or helped you 
develop the second book. Does that make sense? Kind of like expanding on that? Yeah, it totally makes sense. Well, one of the things that was very different about the second book than the first was the amount of research I had to do. Because to get the first book right and to get the setting right and the language right and the clothing and everything, I just did more research than I ever believed I would. But I knew (laughs) the devil was in the details, you know, that if you don't get the the, the minutiae right, it won't be believable. Yeah. Second book, I still did a ton of research, but not nearly as much as the first, because the first I had to actually create everything. The second, I just had to build upon it. Mm -hmm. This challenge with the second book was making it standalone so that someone like yourself who read the second book but hadn't read the first book didn't go, what is all this about? And yet for someone who read the first book, they wouldn't be bored by repetition of things in the second book. And that was the, the really one of the biggest differences between the two books. Another huge difference was how long I had to write the books. Because the first book I wrote on and off over the course of at least five years or longer. Sure. And the second book, I had a one-year deadline to get it published <laughs> a year later. And so it was a very different experience. Yeah. So was that like really difficult having that, you know, kind of that that pressure of like, like, like the divided by five, like shrunk down like from five years to one year? No, you know, actually, it, it wasn't because what I did was I I set weekly or monthly word count goals, you mm. know, not day by day. I did, there were some days I didn't write at all, and there were other days I wrote 10 hours. So it's really like at the end of a week, at the end of a month, had I hit the numbers that I had set for myself so that I'd be done when my deadline was done. Right. And I was able to um, to hit them all. I, I It was not a problem. And I think also when I was writing the book and I'm writing the third book now, so it's no different. Um, I enjoy meeting these characters in my mind. It's almost like a a, a second set of friends, a second yeah. reality. <laughs> and, and so as opposed to drudgery or work, it's sort of like, oh, this is kind of cool. The drudgery, if you will, is going back after the first draft is written and making sure there are enough clues, adding more red herrings, making sure that, that continuity is there. But the the writing of it is something I enjoy. I enjoy being with these characters. That's awesome. Yeah, because you have to... I, I agree with you totally. It is like you, you get in their minds and then you kind of like... With their little personalities, you have to be like, well, how would they respond in these? And yeah, once you get like... You, you dive that deep, it's it's hard to to get them out it's hard to to take a break like once you're finished with the book it's hard to like let them go almost to like wait there why are you still in my brain like we're done i thought you know (laughs) yeah and i i did enjoy learning more about them um going kind of off of your research was there a specific process to that or like you know more so were there any um more fascinating things that you learned while researching or surprising things that you learned while researching um I, I, I don't know that there was that many surprising things. I mean, one of the things that I, I found most interesting was researching the uh, British slang of the era. Uh, and that, that was, there were a lot of words. I had no idea. <laughs> they don't exist anymore, but they're, they're there. Um, no, not really. I, I used the internet. I used libraries. I used librarians. I used friends. Um and I, I'm pretty good at researching. I've always been that way, even in my job. So I, I it, it kind of felt like a natural process to me. Um, and no, I, I, I don't think so. But what, what, what was, what was interesting to me and surprising was that after I wrote the first draft, I sent it to two friends who were Brits to check it. And I was surprised within spite of all the research <laughs> I've done, how many things that weren't right. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want anything to be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, good, good thinking on your part for sending it to them for, you know, people who've lived, lived and, and they are from that, 
that culture, that area. Yeah. They grew up there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's funny. They, did, they didn't live in that era. They'd be dead. Sure. But uh, at least they had a lot better idea of it than I did. And, um, you know, it, it, it was it was really good. Their help was invaluable, if you will. I also, you know, one of the characters speaks French in the book. So I also had to consult with a French speaker friend to make sure I got all the French right. <laughs> yeah, because you kind of slip it in there like just, yeah, you want it to be authentic. You want it to be natural, um, you know, or how how the a native speaker would respond without wanting to like be rude in English or like... <laughs> You know, yeah. one of the greatest compliments that I've gotten um, on the book, uh, the books, well, actually the first book, because the second one's just coming out, um, was, was a, a reader um, who basically said, yes, nobody's going to actually solve crimes in a barber shop. I get that, <laughs> okay? But the book felt so real that it didn't matter. Mm-hmm, you know, and that mm-hmm. was a great compliment. Yeah, it it really is, and um, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because yeah, it's absolutely true. Because it's like, well, as a person reading, being introduced to this concept at the second book, <laughs> it took me. I was like, wait, why are they in a barber shop? But then once I like kind of understood, I think I like read the the like the short brief um re- summary from the first book and i was like oh even the title of the first book i was like oh okay like <laughs> and then he does kind of clarify opinion does it clarify um as he's talking to like witnesses or acquaintances acquaintances and following leads he does introduce himself like no they they're with me like i'm enlisting their help this is like in a on, official unofficial capacity like because yeah even the residents are also like why who what <laughs> exactly yeah Yeah, it was clever i've never i've never um encountered that before but yeah once i like once i understood i was like oh okay it's like it wasn't distracting it was just like wait what (laughs) but it adds to the fun it adds to like their quirkiness and and all that um I really liked Thelma. I think, you know, I'm a little biased. I feel like I just want to be her. I want to own a bookstore in 1900s, you know, early 1900s England. This little quaint little town. Um, she, you know, but she, yeah, you, I think she was like one of the more, um, she, you know, she shined through a little bit more. I think just because she's like, she had quick wit and she's self assured and she, you know, is not, she's not shy at all. And she's, and, and some of the dialogue with, with, uh, she had some of the more fun dialogue, I think, too. Um, you know, and I could see why, why Pinion kind of like fancied her a little bit, why she became the love interest and, and all that. I, I, I liked her a lot. I, I'm really glad you said that because she is my single favorite character in the books and the one I actually kind of like, uh, feel a kindred spirit to. The yeah. Most. And, you know, in that era, and, and that's the same era as Downton Abbey. And when okay. you think of Downton Abbey, what you really think of women who had money, they did mostly uh, charity work. They didn't run businesses. And I wanted to portray her as a woman who was ahead of her time and who was self-assured and ran a business and was able to keep up with any man going and and yeah that's what i was trying to get across and i i love her as a character she is fun and she does add um i think it's you know she adds that necessary component to that group because she they're 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 helpful but she's one of the more helpful ones i would say and she's got the access to the literature and all that stuff like, like, especially with the ballooning, she was just like, "Oh, let's go to my store. <laughs> let's let's figure it out." <laughs> right. <laughs> um. So, this is another like kind of two parter question. Okay. Um. And you can refer either like just the second one or both of them. Um. What is the what were the most challenging parts to write, and then what were like the most enjoyable parts to write? Okay. Um, The most challenging parts to write were the mysteries themselves. Because when I started writing it, what showed up in my head 
was the mystery, but not the solution, not who did it and not how they did it. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the hard part was, even though it, it played out in my brain, I, I still had to occasionally stop and go, where's this going? <laughs> you know? So um, <laughs> that, that was actually the hardest part was making sure that, that the mysteries held together that they weren't solvable by page three. And at yeah. the same time, when you were done, you didn't go, well, how was I supposed to know that? Yeah. <laughs> um, the most enjoyable part was everything else. It was the characters. <laughs> it was the locale. It was it, it just, I, uh, like I said, I enjoy being with these characters. So other than just really trying to nail the mysteries, everything else was just totally enjoyable. Yeah, I could see that. I could tell that you had a lot of fun, but I also, I mean, with the murder mystery part is like, you know, the meat and potatoes. I could tell that you had to put more work into that, but that's it. it that's what requires the most work. Cause yeah, like you said, you don't want to, you want to respect the reader's time and their intelligence, right. but you don't want to, yeah, you don't want to like, I feel like maybe when, when authors try a little too hard, then that they can kind of, kind of tiptoe into that little like it's too complicated but it's like just right. you got to find that sweet spot you know where you're leading the readers on maybe add a twist in there or something so that's one of, one of the thing i liked about this particular with the ballooning it's like okay the the fall did not kill this man like what, right. why does he have an arrow in his chest right. what <laughs> Like exactly. it is, it's like, it's kind of outlandish, but it's just like, what happened? Like what? Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. If he, if he had just died from a balloon falling out of the air, that would be, I won't say commonplace, but it would be less exotic if you will. Yeah. Oh, they turn him over and there's a, an arrow sticking out of his chest. Where the heck did that come from? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's because like, well, how did he because then the reader's like well how did he get into the air like it was right. it because then your their train of thought starts to go well was he shot from from below or up from up high or from like what and how and <laughs> and then it's like you know something's not adding up here and they're like oh those two people they're hiding something you know you gotta have you know you want to make sure that everything makes sense but that you're adding in and you're you're, you you know, you want the reader to be suspicious of everyone almost, but like, wait, wait, I don't trust that person or I'm not okay. sure if they're telling the truth or I don't, where were they, you know, and we haven't yeah. seen this guy, where has he been? Like, so it is. And I, I, and then aside from that, you get back to the, to the group of sleuths and, um, you know, they're with their little, like little witty, I was like banter, but their little commentary here and there. And some of it's helpful and some of it's not. <laughs> it's just like, you know, it was, it was all blended together really well. And um, it just, yeah, it just made it fun. And it just really added to the mood for sure. Cool. Um, so yeah, just a couple more questions before we sure. wrap up here. What advice would you give to Pinyon. I keep like trying to pronounce it. Uh, what advice would you give to Pinyon and what advice would you give to Thelma? Wow, that's a good question. I guess the advice I would give to Thelma is keep being who you're who you are and don't let anybody from that era change you. You know, I, I mean um and 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 to some degree it would be the exact same advice for Pinyon. You know, it, it's these are two very distinct uh, distinctive, distinct characters that have specific traits and foibles and and nice niceties, if you will. And and I think the the advice I would give to them is keep being who you are and don't let people try to homogenize you. Mm. Yeah, that's good. I like that because yeah, like they are. Even though Pignan is uh, like eccentric, it's like that's that's what it's such an advantage for him. And how he and his process and how he solves things. I mean, he, yeah, like he is a little, sometimes he's a little like coy or, you know, at times he's coy and then at times he's a little dramatic, but it's just like, I, I get the vibe that that's a lot of that was just like the atmosphere at the time. That's like how a lot of people were or even like how the entertainment industry kind of portrays the society around that time too, where it's kind of just, embellished a little bit and um even the slightest things are are noticed and um i think kind of one of my favorite 
you know, parts where he was wearing a particular outfit and he's just, he stood out and everybody, everybody had, a, had something to say about it. And then after, after what, at point he was just like, okay, I'm, I need to change. Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But he was like, okay, I don't need to get distracted anymore. This is this is distracting me from my my work, from my investigative work. I don't need to like everybody commenting it before I can ask them the, my questions. Like, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that. Was, he's definitely a fashion plate, but that one outfit did go a little too far. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least he now he now now he knows where the bar is. You know. Yes. <laughs> Actually, uh, in the third book that I'm writing, um, Barnabas, one of the uh, barbers, he uh, he comes in one day wearing this outrageously bright red cap, and you know, and and one of the uh, Eve, the other uh, barber, uh, says to him, you know, something along the lines of, "Oh, are you trying to emulate the Pignon's uh, suit?" <laughs> And, and it's sort of like, I, you know, I've, I've tried to kind of keep the humorous thread of, of the clothing as part of it. Yeah. And, and it's so it's, it is fun. Cause yeah, you have to, you want the readers to like imagine the era too. You want them to imagine it, which was nice. Cause it's like, not just the covers of the books, but you know, it's like, yeah, you kind of, it's even hard. Like how you said you, you visited England a bunch of times, but you know, not a hundred years ago, like not. Yeah. <laughs> that old no <laughs> so you know it's yeah i mean it's it's you have to like try to use your imagination but also with respect to how it was and you want to translate that for the readers as well without you know what you know just setting the backdrop too and it also yeah it all it adds to the charm and you know the, the the environment, the dialogue, the quirkiness—it was all like charming. And it, I just remember at certain conversations or at certain points, I, would, I was like, "Oh, like <laughs> this is so like oh, how lovely!" Like, <laughs> oh, good. You know, yeah. one of the things that in both books, the first one and the second one, is I I included uh, real historical events and people, so. You know, it, it. I'm hoping that what it did was it added to the sense of time and place, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was, you know, in his police station, there's a picture of the new king who was just crowned and there's a union jack and things like that. So, I, you know, I really tried to incorporate the books, the you know, the books by Freud and the painting by Turner and other things like that. Uh, so that it, it really rang, when I say rang true, it's fiction. It's yeah. a fictionalized universe where he, uh, Poirot and uh, and Holmes all existed. I mean, that's a real, a, a fictitious universe because none of them ex- really lived. But then when you populate it with real life events, hopefully it, you, it, it's more believable, if you will, in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it does help. Yeah, it just helps like, the readers kind of imagine the big picture and put the pieces together to get down to like, okay, here's a story. What's going on. Um, So that being said, what um, you kind of touched on this, what can without, obviously without being too spoilery, what can uh, readers expect in the next one? Well, I, I, I don't have to be spoilery at all here, but (laughs) I've already started writing two of the, crimes that are going to occur in the book and one is not a murder and one is a murder Um, the non-murder is the story of a young female magician who develops a trick that is so astounding an illusion i should say not a trick that she performs it at a major venue in london and harry houdini is there to try to debunk her and he can't, mm-hmm. he can't figure it out. But what what happens is that everywhere she and her troupe go and perform, crime and mayhem occur. And people swear it's her doing it. But she <laughs> can't be on the stage and robbing a store at the same time. So that's one of the, uh, the things that Scorpion has to resolve. 
And the other one is the story of a man who writes a book about his post-death experiences. He technically dies, has a after-death experience, but comes back to life, writes a book about it, becomes <laughs> a celebrity, but then he gets murdered. And I'm not going to say anything more than that, but he gets murdered on Scorpion's turf. Oh my goodness. I love that. I can't wait to to get into that. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> it's like you gotta you gotta step it up a little bit with each book, you know. You gotta you gotta give, give do a little bit more. You gotta reach a little bit higher. Um, because that sounds kind of outrageous, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's cool. And I've also written a prequel that takes place when he was a constable when he first met calvin brown yeah his very first case in that barber shop and i'm not sure what i'm going to do with that whether i'm going to incorporate it in the third book or whether i'm going to publish it as a separate prequel or just offer it for free i don't know mm. yet but uh yeah that that's about a uh a, a a a young female cousin who um comes and visits uh her her cousin in pinon's town and what happens to her she's assaulted and how he solves that crime. Yeah, that'd be really fascinating too. <clears throat> and how, <clears throat> excuse me, I think how how you decide to deliver that to the world is, um, it'll yeah. come to you for sure. Yeah, I have a lot of different options. I just have to decide which one's the best. <laughs> okay, Rick Blyweiss, we've got Murder in Hacksford. It comes out on February 21st, correct? Yes, that is correct. The, uh, the first one, which is, Pinion Scorpion Scorpion and the Barbershop Detectives, correct? Yes, correct. And that is available now. Okay. I want to make sure. Just trying my best. Um, thank you so much. This was such a fun conversation. And um, you know, like I said, I'm looking forward to uh more of the barbershop detectives, more more problem solving, more murder mysteries and and uh more each adventure more outrageous than the than the last one. Thank you. But I do have to tell you, I am writing another book as well now. Yes. Yeah. What other projects can you share? Well, I can share that I'm writing my memoir. Uh, okay. So that that's, I'm writing a book on sound business leadership, a, a nonfiction business book. Um, and then I'm writing a book. I don't have a title for it yet. Uh, that is contemporary, takes place in, in this day and age in the U.S., and it's about a crusty old 80-some-odd-year-old ex-military vet who's living with his daughter, and it, it just can't keep going. They, they, they're, they're clashing, so um, they move him into a retirement home that he doesn't want to be in, <laughs> and the retirement home is being terrorized by a group of youths who are harassing the residents. So the man who just moved in there teaches them kind of how to do self-defense and set traps. <laughs> so it's kind of a cross between uh, the best Marigold Hotel meets uh, Home Alone meets the Karate Kid. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But the cast of characters is like, a handful of years older than your typical <laughs> exactly it'll be it'll be a bunch of very very quirky seniors in, oh in my gosh home that he works with to teach them self-defense and set all of these traps up and uh yeah and, uh, yeah, yeah and hopefully it'll be similar to the scorpion series in that you'll like the characters they'll make you smile they'll make you laugh yeah, I I imagine you can have so much fun with that too, and so much fun with those interactions and situations. <laughs> oh my god, that's so fun! That's awesome. Well, yeah, I'll have to keep an eye out. Like, I'm interested in your memoir as well. I bet you have like so much fascinating life experiences to explore and to share, and you know, and and plus. You could compare these skills now that you've got a couple published books under your belt. You could take that momentum, take that confidence and, and, you know, run with it. That's awesome. You know, aside from everything I've done in business, I, I, again, I'll try things. I've done past life regression. I've done uh, uh, manifesting. I've uh, done 
I've uh, done fossil hunting in France and the U.S. I've, I've dug for diamonds. I mean, I think life's an adventure, and so go for it and have fun. That's amazing. I love that. That's that's so fit. I yeah. Again, I feel like you don't know how long that memoir is going to be, but that would be so fascinating to to check it out. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Do you want to share your um, website, social media, real quick? Yeah, my uh, my website is just rickblyweiss dot com. Uh, it really the trick is spelling Blyweiss. <laughs> so, well, I'll be sure to spell it out in the show notes just to make sure. <laughs> that, that's great, and I'm on um, I'm on all the I'm on everything TikTok, LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, Facebook. Uh, I'm leaving something out. Twitter. Um, YouTube, and it's either Rick Blyweiss or Rick Blyweiss author. I don't think there are any other Rick Blyweisses, so it's yeah. hard <laughs> to miss me. Um, the other thing is I have a, uh, a show on um, on YouTube uh, called Rick Blyweiss Chapter and Verse, where I interview authors about the craft of writing. And I've interviewed some really great writers, and I also interview literary agents and uh people who are in, involved in uh, making books uh, into films and TV shows and how to do that. And uh, I've just had a lot of fun interviewing people for other authors uh, to give them advice. Yeah. That's one thing that's like, that, that, that that's the first thing that I thought of was um, it's, it's picking the brains and helping perspe- perspective writers and people who are in the industry and just want to learn a little bit, get a little bit of tips here and there. And that's, yeah, that's awesome that you found a way to, you know, just again, curing your boredom, <laughs> meeting new challenges, figuring out and connecting people and, you know, figuring out how to essentially just how to help people and to provide more, more, um, you know, to share more information amongst well, the people. Yeah. Yeah, I also do that. I'm only familiar with Ali programs at universities, the Osher Life. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I do um, virtual uh, presentations to university Ali groups across the U.S. And most of those presentations are uh, because by nature of these groups, they're seniors, the, the members of the groups, it is really about not allowing your age to be an excuse for not doing anything. You know, nobody is too old to pursue their dreams at any age until you're buried. And (laughs) I try to be an inspiration and encourage other seniors to go for their dreams and not give up just because of age. Yeah. And you're like a living, breathing example of that for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Rick. Um, Again, Murder in Hexford is out uh, February 21st. Thank you so much. It was so awesome. Such an honor to talk to you and learn more about you. And I'm, you know, you're, you're one of the people who I'm just gonna, I feel like I'm going to recognize your name everywhere now. Well, great. (laughs) Thank you you for having me on. I I appreciate being on this show. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Interviewer too. Thank you. Oh, thanks. That means a lot. Okay, there you go. That was Rick Blyweiss talking about murder in Hacksford, which comes out on February 21st. The first book, Pignan, Scorpion, and the Barbershop, Detec- Barbershop Detectives, is available now, so go check it out. You can look in the show notes to see links on for Rick's social and website and where to purchase the books. Please do follow um, and subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. The Nerd Cantina and Cantina Book Club. Be sure to keep checking us out, my book reviews, and check out these author interviews. As always, thanks so much for listening.